0: Off The Ball.
1: Find us on Twitter at Off The Ball.
0: News Talk 106 to 108. Yeah, you're very welcome, along. So, two live Premier League games on the show for you this afternoon. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer faces his toughest test thus far as Manchester United manager. Spurs and Wembley await. We'll be bringing you that game with Nathan Murphy and Brian Kerr. Half past four, kickoff at two fifteen. We have Everton against Bournemouth at Goodison. Kevin Kilbane alongside Stephen Doyle. You can text us five three one zero six. We are at Off the Ball on Twitter. And we will start by reviewing the Sunday Papers. We have Bernard Jackman here in the studio. Bernard, thanks a million for popping in. Thank you, Appreciate Joe. Appreciate it. And Brendan O'Brien from the Irish Examiner here as well. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. So uh, the front pages and the Sunday Papers, we'll get straight into it today because we have a kickoff at Goodison <coughs> on the way. So the uh, Sunday Times, then, just perfect. Victories for Leinster, Ulster and Connacht make it four wins from four for the Irish in Europe. And there's a picture of Adam Byrne scoring Leinster's bonus point try yesterday against Toulouse. And then down here at the bottom, Goal hero Rice is the complete manager, that's according, or the complete player, that's according to his manager uh, Manuel Pellegrini, scored yesterday at 19 years of age in West Ham's win over Arsenal. Uh, Sunday Independent, again, it's the rugby from yesterday which dominates, and it's a picture of Adam Byrne again jumping for joy. Uh, Leinster closing on home quarter final as eye last eight births, but injury toll mounts is Brendan Fanning here. Luke McGrath went down injured for Leinster yesterday. and It looks serious, to be honest. The Mail on Sunday then. Cubs go wild. Again, it's Leinster, and I guess it's a sign that we're all getting old, but these guys are starting to look very young. It's Jordan Larmer, who I would say looks about 11 years old there, jumping <laughs> up on Adam Byrne. Uh, youthful Leinster put on a show, but injuries meant for Schmidt as Six Nations uh, looms. Uh, then the star... Their main story is uh, Mo Salah, Brighton nil Liverpool 1, Mo Salah with the penalty. A picture of Jurgen Klopp, Uh, Jurgen thanks Mo Salah for winning goal. Mo's a bright spark, Klopp satisfied as Salah pinches win. One of those cliched wins you have to get if you're going to win the league. Uh, Sunday mirror then we have uh, Mo Salah again Brighton nil Liverpool 1. Sitting gritty, Klopp hailed stars for (coughs) digging out what he calls a mature uh, victory. And uh, Frankie for Eric de Jong to fill Christian Void. It seems uh, Spurs are chasing down the brilliant young Ajax midfielder Frankie de Jong to replace Christian Eriksen, who they reckon is going to Real Madrid for 100 million euro. And then the Sunday World, you'll see here John Aldridge at the top, the kind of win that makes champs, talking about Liverpool's win, and Rice won son. So it's Declan Rice. Everybody's very impressed with Declan. Mark's birthday in real style. And up here... A picture of Gary Ringrose who got man of the match yesterday. Uh, Leinster, run rings around Toulouse. And then finally, Sun Sport. <coughs> uh, it's the rugby at the top. Uh, baby blues, steel show. Uh, the Leinster, 29, Toulouse, 13. And this isn't a job interview. Solskjaer saying the potch battle won't decide my future Spurs against Manchester United. Live here and off the ball at half past four. So, gents, you're very welcome. Bernard, thanks a million for coming in. Um... I guess a few weeks on from leaving the Dragons, are you sitting around the house and reliving it all, or how uh, do you? No, I've done. I've, dealt with, it with no, I've
2: dealt with that. I think um, obviously um, Christmas was was a good period. Uh, spending time with the family and just reviewing um, the last uh, the last year and a half. Obviously, I spoke to you. You know, at the start of that, and um, we spoke about a tree. Uh, you know, a three-year plan, trying to turn the Dragons around. Um, I even
0: then, you were very aware this was going to be tough.
2: Yeah, you don't take on you know a, the team at the bottom and. Um, without you know vast resources and I think it's going to be easy. No job is easy in in, in pro sport, but uh, um, you know a true my uh, my best uh, effort at it, um, and I I don't really have any regrets. I think um, you know it's just it was a case of whoever the first man in was always going to find it hard, and hopefully now um, the Wru and the board will will continue to invest in in the region and um, they, they can be successful because the players are fans and fans deserve it.
0: In truth, does anger simmer away when you get? Relieved of your duties?
2: Um, like no, I don't think. I think if you carry that, um, you're not going to learn as much from it, and you're going to be affected by it. I think. Um, no, you got to analyze what could what could you done better, um, and you know understand that um, those jobs are difficult, and and some people will get success, and some others won't. And uh, it's about being able to meet those players in a couple of years' time, and, and for them to uh, recognize that you did the best for them. I think I'm very comfortable that they do feel that. Mm.
0: And so what are your ambitions now? Is to um, get right back in the horse straight away or take no, some listen, time?
2: No, listen, I'm taking some time. I think, um, unfortunately, in this uh, job, you need someone else to lose a job to, uh, to have an opportunity. And, and, and um, I'm very aware of that and I'm very conscious of that. So, um, listen, I think if you look at it's work-up year. So a lot of coaching cycles will finish post World Cup, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just a case of, of being patient, staying current, upskilling myself, uh, making sure that I, I, I'm in a better position um, than I than I was yesterday to um, to get a job that comes up, yeah. and uh, that I can you know I can definitely add to an organization.
0: It takes huge mental strength, and in rugby where there are fewer teams than, say, the world of football, it's more difficult again to get back on the horse. Somebody like Stuart Lancaster must jump out as a huge inspiration for all coaches now going through a tough time.
2: Yeah, 100%. And there's very few coaches who don't have a blip. Um, at some stage on the record, Joe Smith's probably the yeah. uh, the guy I'm, I'm trying to think whereas he had a failure and he hasn't. I don't think you know, but uh, he's very good. You see, Joe Smith, Bernard. No, he's incredibly good. But, um, <laughs> most coach Eddie Jones was released from the Queensland Reds, um, having lost by seventy points to the Bulls. Had to go to Japan um, to restart his career. Um, Warren Gatlin was released by Ireland. Um, and, you know, Richard Cocker was sacked by Leicester. And now he's part of an Edinburgh team who are um, who are flying high. So um, there's definitely very few. Co- Leo Leo Cullen lost his first. His first season, I think he lost 6-6 six from six in Europe, yeah. you know, and look where he is now. So, um, it's about having that mental strength and resilience and self-belief to, to bounce back. But, um, yeah, it's exciting.
0: Yeah. Anyone, did you, did you talk to anyone in the managerial world?
2: Um uh, no, I spoke to Warren. Um, did you? Yeah, Warren, because he was obviously a key part of me going there. And, yeah. Um, yeah, listen, he, he, he was, he's always been a really good mentor to me. And uh, I would speak to lots of people, you know, I think um, I, I stayed out of team organisations over the last you know, 6 7 weeks but i think definitely now i'm going to get back in my car and I'm on airplanes and uh, go visit some some clubs and, and continue to learn.
0: Good. Well listen we'll talk about that in more depth at another stage. You're here to review the papers today. The rugby <coughs> as the front pages show dominate and uh, it was an extraordinary good weekend for the Irish provinces again. I'm 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 just a, before we get into all the papers I'm 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 trying to keep this nagging suspicion and, and doubt at bay at the back of my head which wonders how much the English and French Clubs really care about this competition. When the going gets tough, I think they're bailing out at the first sign of trouble, and we're hanging our hat on it.
1: We were we were talking about this earlier, weren't we, Bernard? I mean, right. it's like the the counter view is coming in already. We're not even through the weekend. Before it was perfectly poised for a huge weekend for the Irish provinces, mm. but you know, Gloucester were crap. You know, too loose, disappointed. Rassing, are well, they're through anyway, and it's very easy to swing that way. Whereas you know that's hindsight, and it's 2020. It's really easy, but I mean this this is still fantastic achievement. I mean, you know, you look at Toulouse. What was what were we saying all last week, Bernard? If there's any French club that loves European yeah. competition, it's Toulouse. Look at racing 92. Jackie Lorenzetti, that guy is just yeah. absolutely ravenous for a European title. Mm. So you know, it's very easy to flip and flop from one to the other. And I think maybe a little bit early
2: before the. The round is even finished. That we're kind of saying, well, uh, you not know, that good, really. Yeah, uh, uh, you're 100 percent right about Toulouse. I um, I met the the Toulouse stadium manager. He was over on, on Friday, and through mutual contact, he wanted to visit Viva, and uh, they brought over 40 of their biggest sponsors um to Dublin. they stay staying the Westbury. Uh, they were set for a massive scalp in Europe. Okay. and the players, the players, uh, uh, I met some of the players uh, as well, and and. And and William Servat, the the, the <coughs> coach who's obviously won four European Cup medals with, with Toulouse, and Hugo Mola, who was part of that as well, they came here to do a job. It wasn't um, it wasn't disinterested French. Yeah. team. they just didn't have the the quality yeah. on okay. the day to, to do the job. Servat said we were schooled basically. Yeah. His English wasn't great, but that's the, the point he was making. Yeah, and in fairness, I think um, Wayne Barnes has said that the that Leinster are the most the well drilled mm. team in Stuart. Stuart, Stuart Barnes. Barnes yeah. Right. Yeah, sorry, Stuart Barnes. Uh, it will be good if Wayne Barnes <laughs> saying it would be helpful. If, um, but yeah, they're the most well drilled team in, in, in Europe. And um, I actually, looking at Munster on Friday night, I don't think they're far behind. I think we've, we've two teams who are real contenders to, to win this.
0: That's um, Stuart Barnes' real point, actually. So it's uh, page eight and nine in the Sunday Times. I thought it was one of the more interesting pieces on the rugby, I must say, as well. And he talked about. Leinster and how they handle the conditions because yeah. we, you know, you, I presume Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster were planning for this a long way out but then you wake up and there's a gale force breeze so you have to really rethink things and they did that and he talked about the carrying in the first half in particular when Leinster were against the wind he said there was nothing random in who carries where and when. Watching the first half I note the same name Keane Healy. so often the first carrier off the scrum the outstanding loose head isn't quite as quick as Sean Cronin his hooker but he's a bit more sharper out of the, bro- out of the blocks then his mate on the other side of the scrum, Tyg Furlong. Healy was the name in the uh, notebook, the next one was Furlong, time after time. He says, these are not just big lads thinking, I'll have a charge. No, they are part of the best organised team Europe has ever seen. Phases of 20 plus carriers are now the norm. The number of occasions on which the two props carried in the first half was impressive, but what was astonishing was the orchestrated manner in which they operated. Mm.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that that's, that's that's true, and it's it's true Irish rugby at the moment. I mean, everyone speaks about the Irish team's uh, quality at the breakdown, um, and obviously technically we were very very good there. But it's the organisation to to get there. Like our ball carriers very rarely let go to the defensive line on zone. own. Um, it's very clear who's responsible for that clear out, and um, we don't put. We don't over-resource that rook so we don't end up with having five guys in the attacking rook <coughs> because that would make it easier for the opposition for the next phase. So, you know, to go 36 phases, which they did, and they actually didn't score off it, actually. To lose
0: it very well then. Yeah, yeah, but
2: you certainly felt, and Leinster I think would have felt, that that was actually just sowing the seed for the last 20 minutes. Mm. When you know having to defend for thirty
0: six phases yeah. uh, would leave a mark. And well, he, I because I, I I was on the touchline and then Matt Williams was part of the Virgin Media coverage and I said, "Oh, that's not great that they didn't get over after thirty six phases." And he said, "Look how much time it's eaten yeah. up. This is, I mean, they're just playing this whole game beautifully. Yeah.
1: It made an abundance an abundance of sense to me. I mean, with with all the talk about the ten internationals that were missing, mm. when you look at that pack and that front five as well. Yeah. I mean, you talk about. I mean, Stuart Barnes talks about." the structure of who was carrying where and when, I mean, that's pretty much their first choice uh, front row. So it makes sense to me, well, the guys out back aren't maybe as familiar with each other. And you can see, I thought, the structure of their play after a while, that out back the ideas became a little bit kind of ragged, whereas up front they knew precisely what they were doing the whole time. So it it makes sense to do
0: something like that. Is that level of structure difficult to impose on a team as a
2: Uh, coach? Yeah, it is. I think you need uh, real clarity in your message and you need players who are actually... Willing and able to take on information and understand it, and that's I think that seeps <coughs> all the way down from um, from Joe Schmidt back down to the to the provinces, uh, because you know they speak about on a on a Monday on a Monday uh, uh, in the Irish camp a walkthrough where you've been sent the information in terms of your role in particular patterns, mm. and you know to be a meter to the left or a meter to the right um, off has, you know, um, serious consequences in terms of your opportunity to play. Yeah. So guys, are, it's, it's like knowing your playbook in, in NFL for a quarterback. You need to know your role in a, in a sequence of of uh, structured plays and patterns and then you need to implement it. And I think that Irish rugby, and for instance, in our school system as well, so right. the French, you know, call it the Anglo-Saxon way um, where everything is structured and everyone has a role and they actually criticise it a lot. Right? But then when William Servat comes up against it yesterday as a coach, he realises how effective it is. And I think if you look at Leinster, if you look at their defeat in Toulouse earlier on in the year, they were actually quite loose. Mm-hmm. You know, so they went for that 50-50 pass mm-hmm. or they offload and that's where Toulouse spring into action. And that's playing Toulouse at their own game. Exactly. And, and where does Leinster? it tend
0: to break down for you? So you've got your game plan and you've got the structure and you know where everybody should be and you feel you're communicating this well to players and somewhere in that maelstrom it breaks down under the pressure of a game. Are there just only so many intelligent players in the world? Is it your communication skills? What do you feel is the big area that you try and improve? Yeah, I think you, it has forward. to
2: be something that you can't go into... If you went into France, and foreign coaches have tried this, yeah. and even dumbed it down a little bit, it's still not what they've known from <coughs> 12s, under 13s. Whereas probably here, because historically we were more limited in terms of athleticism mm-hmm. than you know other teams, yeah. like South Africans, etc., cetera, um, or even at schools level, sometimes we've had maybe coaches who haven't a background in rugby. So they upskill themselves and learn kind of, um, learn the system rather than it's a laissez-faire attitude to go out and play. Mm. Uh, so as our, our, uh, the Irish rugby players in general are very, very good on detail and want detail and crave detail. Okay. Uh, and then you get a good level of athletes, you get a good work ethic, you get good team spirit and a good plan, it all comes together pretty well. Yeah. Uh, Barnes, simple. Barnes, <laughs> it does,
0: yeah, yeah, easy. Um, <coughs> Barnes talks about Munster and Leinster generally as well. Uh, he talked about Ross Byrne's lovely weighted cross kick for Dave Kearney's try. Hinted at anything but off-the-cuff rugby. It was straight out of the Sexton textbook. Maybe it was even in the Ireland textbook. And uh, he talks about how impressed he was with Munster as well. He says, um, you know, Eddie Jones before has talked about Sexton's body and, you know, his injury situation. And on the Carberry Point, Barnes says, Eddie Jones need not waste his words, warning the Irish fly half of the physical threats coming his way. Ireland have a high-class replacement now, not a void. Ireland also have two sides who will be hard to crack in Europe. The rest of Europe must be green with envy. And um, if you were to sum up the Neil Francis piece, he's more to come from blues, but the ghost of Thumland Park now well and truly banished as the headline. The point he makes is, you know, you couldn't say it was a perfect performance or that they were absolutely clinical because there were... He says unpardonable inaccuracies and he says you can't say it was relentless either because Toulouse later on did have their purple patch. But he says that in really high quality matches you get exposed and he says nobody in blue was exposed. Anybody you had doubts about in the blue ranks performed admirably and that was the most pleasing thing about yesterday's victory.
1: I thought like in terms of Leinster performances I've seen a ton of Leinster in the last 10 years that's as, as impressive for me in some ways as anything I've seen I saw them beat Claremont in a semi-final in mm. in, uh, in France which is probably the the ultimate still to this day but given the context of the team they were playing the players they were missing mm. everything they did and I, I was saying to you Bernard is there another team in Europe that could lose 10 of their top class players and school a team like Toulouse like that
2: no there isn't the, I mean, there definitely is I think depth wise yeah, um, and they're guys that Mate my aren't household names, yeah. You know, so I, uh, you know, I saw something yesterday with Lawrence Ladio and Uga Monya, you know, speaking about the quality of Bath and and and, and, and the salary cap and all these issues and why they don't have the depth. I mean, they have guys who are the similar similar age profile to, to the yeah. to the Adam Burns' of this world, yeah. Um, but when they step into that level, they're not ready. Mm. So, you know, I don't think it's a money issue. I mean, you know, there's big issues, there's a big debate in England about salary cap, etc., the salary cap. Is more than high enough to compete in on both fronts, mm. but it's, for some reason there's a gap between their academy players and their development players coming in and being able to step into a team against a quality opposition and perform. Whereas the Leinster youngsters, the Munster youngsters, at the moment, Ulster youngsters, in fairness, Ulster, you know, have have had to, to dig deep, and you know, they're able to go up against Racing Metro yesterday. And get a, you get a famous win. You know, yeah. Irish in a really strong place. Yeah. It's probably the first time ever four provinces are going to qualify for Europe. Yeah, time ever.
0: It, it, would, it will be the yeah. first time ever. Yeah, so it, on um, Ulster, if you go to page 81 of the mail, stock on the rise, Jacob Stockdale. That's six tries in his four, four, five European games now. It is six and five, so he's the top try scorer in the competition. Uh, James Murray reporting here 26 22, the final score. The Ireland winger scored tries in either half, his second, a memorable solo effort. He scored in every European round so far. So far. There's a thing about Stockdale. So take his recent tries. I'm thinking of the Scarlets away game where he had a great run down the wing and even the solo effort last night against uh, Claremont where he beats a really good player on the outside who gets hands on him and then kicks. And as happens in Jacob Stockdale's life when the ball bounces the right <laughs> way, that's the other thing. Like That has to stop <laughs> soon or else he's able to predict how a ball's going to bounce in some <coughs> innate way that we don't realise. But there have been a number of occasions like the Scarlets game, like last night against Racing, where... Taken in isolation, you would say, well, the defender should have stopped him. Yep. You know, he had hands on him. So that's just poor defending. But it's now happening too many times. So, so there's something he's doing when defenders get hands on him that makes him not as easy to stop as we think he might be. He's a very strong fend, handoff. Um, and he has that
2: ability. He's, for a big, strong, quick, athletic guy, he actually has very good footwork. So at the, as, the, as the tackler lunges, he's able to just shift slightly away again. Mm-hmm. Whereas most players are committed to that to that running line and and they're not able to have a late change direction so it's not a flamboyant um, sidestep like we saw from the last try for Toulouse yesterday with Chesney Coburn but he has very subtle footwork that just gets him that millimetre he needs to break those tackles and he did twice yesterday for the first try as well Antoine Classant's you know, for all manner, you should have been in touch. Yeah, but it's 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 harder to work out how he missed the tackle than than um,
0: than made it. But um, so Stockdale seems to be a common denominator that he has missed, tackles. and very few
2: guys can do that. And I think now he's up there. If there's a British and Irish Lions um, tour this summer, you would say and he's. Probably nailed on to be the starting winger, which is incredible.
0: His little kick over the top and running after mm. it and somehow scoring is becoming a trademark very quickly. You know, Twickenham and New Zealand, and you see it again yeah. last night.
1: It's, a, it's interesting as well. I mean, in any sport, a guy can, who can finish can put the ball in the net in a soccer context is, yeah. is just gold. And you look at again yesterday, Jordan Larmour, who we all know is an amazing player, but yet one criticism of him is maybe he's too lateral with the sidestep. There was one point yesterday where a beautiful little Cheslin Colby like Jink, yeah. and then. Little gap opened and he jinked again. You're thinking, just go through it. And, and Stockdale maybe is a lesson there in
0: you know, a more direct form of getting to the line. I mean, his, his try record is phenomenal. It's ridiculous. I, I presume like, you can't put too much pressure on him. That just can't happen across the next 10 years. He'll have to slow down at some stage. But I was just going to ask with the dinks over the top, like the Twickenham one where he knees it mm-hmm. you know, and judges the bounce again, like he did last night. He judged the bounce better than three players. Are some players gifted with this innate ability to predict what way a rugby ball is going to bounce? Uh, listen,
2: I think he is getting very favourable bounces. So obviously <laughs> okay. there's a, a practice. <laughs> no, that's all I yeah, need no, to no, know. That's fine. <laughs> no, having, having said that, if you look at the, the key difference in those tries is he's been able to get past the defenders. Yeah. So when that ball bounces, he's yeah. in front of them. Mm-hmm. So pace um, is a key factor. And in hey. fairness, that second try yesterday it was a pre-plan move, very similar to the one that he scored against Ireland. The Ireland one Zealand- was... New Zealand, uh, New Zealand was a, was a line-out. That was a scrum, mm-hmm. but it isolated the, um, their right
0: winger and uh, it gave them a, a foot race to the line. Grant, but in short, when he dinks that ball over the top and it's in the air, we are not saying that he has an innate ability to know which way the ball is bounced. There's also the fact
2: that defender has to turn I presume, uh, as well. His agent yeah. would tell you he can. But, um, <laughs> you haven't seen it anyway. Also, listen, he, he obviously has good, footwork, good footballing ability to make it bounce <laughs> favor but... Yeah, he wouldn't be able to control it as well as he does. It. His pace is a huge factor. Okay, okay.
0: But he's, he's just in this run where yeah. er, literally the ball is bouncing his way. Yes. That's um, kind of what's happening. Just before we leave, leave the rugby, there's a piece you have it open, yeah. Brendan, in front of you. English civils, Civil War threatens as clubs chase the money. And this is like a this story in English rugby is going on as long as English rugby is going on. The clubs mm. and the RFU want control over things, yeah. and this is the latest stand from the English clubs.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, it's a piece by Rory Keane. Um, Rory has just recently returned to Ireland, and he was working as a rugby journalist in the UK, so there's a couple of little um, you know anecdotes in here that he would have picked up from his, his buddies in the media in England, which gives him... Uh, an extra little insight. What I like about it as well, a lot of times, if you're writing this for an Irish audience, yeah. you'll try and shoehorn the Irish angle into it. It's very unapologetically this is an English story. We're just telling it. And it's a very good synopsis on it. Mm. Uh, and you know, we talk about layout and papers as well sometimes as well. And what caught my eye was the picture down at the bottom of um, Mark McCafferty with Theresa May in the inset mm. and. If you're in that kind of company, that's not a very good start for you straight away. And Rory puts it into the context of Brexit as well, when a few years ago the English and the French clubs basically caused the, the downturn of the, the Heineken Cup and the power play. And that's what this all is.
0: I don't think, by the way, the competition has fully recovered from No, this. it hasn't,
1: unquestionably. It hasn't it's got that hasn't luster. Yeah.
0: No. The Heineken Cup was such a great brand and it was only getting bigger. Yeah. And you ask people on the street now, what's the name of the European competition? Yeah. Champions Heineken yeah. Cup? Champions Cup? You know?
1: Yeah. And, and it's just, it's a very good summation of everything that's happening and has
2: happened and just the
1: state of flux that
2: is in um, in the English game at the moment. Well, I think as well, I mean, if, this, is a, this is a league that are basically trying to dictate to the RFU. Celtic yeah, Nations, yeah. RFU, yeah. Uh, European Rugby, and um, Mark McCrafferty obviously they've been able to convince a, a hedge fund to, <coughs> to invest £230 million, um, for 27%, but when, all, when it all broke, they invited members of the media to come to the uh premiership yeah, headquarters yeah. um a 45 minute briefing but all the signage and background was still a viva even though gallagher had taken over so you know they don't seem to be completely in sync yeah. um and, and ready to go and dominate the world world rugby if they haven't got their own house in order yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and if you can't form a strong relationship with your own governing body which is are a few, yeah. who also give them 200 million yeah. you know not a great sign that you're ready to go and, and, and
0: fix world Rugby's problems. That's true, yeah. The, the RFU have given them £200 million. Um Basically, they want to break away and set up their own league. They want to be free of the RFU. They want to have total control of their over their players, yeah. I presume. Uh, they don't want relegation either, and I presume they don't want much of a salary cap. Well,
1: the, the whole relegation thing is obviously the big question at the yeah. moment. Will it be? Will they scrap it at the end of this season, or as Rory has here, the indication is maybe that it'll semi-compromise will extend that to next year, yeah. that they'll get London Irish up. And you know, just as a pure sporting you know, observer, how horrible is that? It's just so nakedly commercial mm. and, and business-like. Well, hold on, we need to get our buddy into uh, this club yeah, first, yeah, yeah. and then we'll lock the doors. More, and, and just the figure you mentioned, Bernard, yeah. 230 million for 27%. I'm never good at maths, but that would value the Gallagher Premiership at close to a billion pounds, which to me is a, a staggering figure. Absolutely staggering. I mean, this is a, a business that is not making money. Exeter Chiefs are the only team to make any money last year. Yeah. in the Red. It's, we're talking staggering figures here. So yeah. when you look at it like that,
0: you can understand exactly where all this power play is coming yeah, from. Yeah, the, the floor could fall out of English rugby very easily. Saracens, he mentions, 40 million in debt. It seems, though, the other point that Rory makes is this whole... Extraction from the RFU is Mm proving very difficult because in 2016 they signed the professional game agreement, which allowed Eddie Jones lots of access to the players, and they got the Premiership clubs got 200 million in return. That's legally binding. You can't just say we've decided not, you know, we're ignoring that. So uh, it's proving tricky. That is the rugby in the papers. We're going to take a short break. We're keeping things moving today because we've got kickoff at Goodison Park at quarter past two. Uh, There's a piece in the back page of the Sunday Independent, which, uh, if you're Niall Quinn reading, will probably have you wincing. So we're going to talk about that in just one second. Welcome back. Bernard Jackman and Brendan O'Brien from the Irish Examiner with us in studio looking at the Sunday papers. We do have Spurs against Manchester United later on, half past four. Commentary is on the way. By the way, just in the rugby, I should have mentioned, it's not all over the papers, but the Simon Zeebo... A tweet, you suspect, is going to be a big story across the week. He was talking about the (coughs) game last night in Belfast. A tough place to play, great effort from the boys, uh, two important points on the road. And then he said, Also, I hope my ears deceive me with some comments directed my way from the crowd. Hashtag not on. Django wins in the end. Now, based on the themes in Django Unchained, he's certainly hinting there at racist abuse, and he's hoping his ears deceived him. Um, He probably will be asked to clarify this in a more mm. straightforward way as opposed to hinting at it mm. and we'll have to see where that goes but um, that was my interpretation of that tweet
1: yeah it's seen how it means be seeing how soon or long we can actually get around to that i mean he's over in paris yeah. and how he's not exactly readily accessible mm. Um, you know, it might not be picked up and it might linger for a while, hopefully not. And like, say, it does come out and it's clarified one way or another. Yeah,
0: if he makes the allegations, it has to be dealt with. Yeah. But I, I think letting it just linger in that vacuum yeah, there is probably is that. Not the best thing. Um, so I mentioned before the ad break there, there's a piece, um, well, there's a few pieces on Niall Quinn, who this week, and you were there, Brendan, when he was speaking on uh, Tuesday he's been talking about some plans, I would say not in huge detail, but in a degree of detail, huge plans for what could be done with the League of Ireland and the academies around the League of Ireland. Paul Rowan's w- writing about it, a uh, fairly s- straightforward way just outlining some of what Niall Quinn is saying, Quinn's lofty domestic goal is the headline and um, to be fair to Rowan he does say at some points, you know, more controversial then the other stuff that Quinn's talking about will prove his proposals for tax breaks for multinational companies and corporate social <coughs> responsibility payments. He says also uh, Quinn's idea that the immigration investor program be used to lure Brazilian footballers seeking Irish citizenship and with a spare 1 million euro in their back pockets looks outlandish, uh, talks about relations as well between the FAI and Quinn, which are somewhat frosty and speculates as to how the politics of this is all going to play out. Uh, this being Quinn coming out publicly to talk about his goals for the league. So that's um, a small enough piece in the Sunday Times, page six. On the back page, Eamon Sweeney sharpens his knife (laughs) and uh, (coughs) goes to town on the plan. Daft plan, a throwback to Celtic Tiger. Opening line, Niall Quinn is chancing his arm. Um, Talks about how we first heard about this on the Marian Finucane show, which he says is Ireland's premium venue for idle, semi-informed, middle-class chatter. Quick (laughs) swipe there across that Marion show on his way to Quinn's uh, statements which he says are like that but with uh, corporate waffle we get the likes of quote big corporate social responsibility or put something better on the table for our industry and getting a white paper together he says it's a throwback to the halcyon Celtic tiger days when any half-baked idea would be greeted as visionary and he talks about how apple might chip in god bless them um says Quinn's big idea is to replicate the current structure, but with more money, except he doesn't want the FAI to have anything to do with these teams. Essentially, he wants the structure that's there at the moment to be broken up and then replaced by something which is exactly the same, but with different people in charge, people who might, and he says, I'm taking a wild guess here, be Niall Quinn and his buddies from the business world. And on it goes in that vein, he says, if Quinn's ideas are so painfully daft, why waste time and space pointing it out? And he says, because for starters, they might cause a lot of trouble if they're taken on board by the politicians he wants to court. Finnegale, always keen to do the corporate sector a favour. And you could just imagine Shane Ross thinking, this is just the ticket. Uh, he says, Quinn's ideas shouldn't be ignored because he's an interloper. They should be ignored because they're ridiculous. Get up the yard and aisle, is his closing statement. There's I mean, a lot. They're, they're just some of the choice quotes.
1: You know, you could come at this from, from so many angles. Um, Like you said, I was there on Tuesday. He spoke to us for 35 or 36 minutes. Um, He wasn't looking at his watch. This was something that he was very, you know, very open to to sharing with us. Um, Just a couple of things to point out, out on it. Niall himself said on Tuesday, I'm not the answer here. You know, I'm not coming in here with, you know, this is how we do it. This is how we don't do it. Um, he said something about when he was asked, look, would you like to be a, you know, heading this? He said, I'm not trying to deliver anything. I'm not capable of delivering. So there's a number of points where he said, look, all I'm interested in doing here is generating a debate. These are my ideas. And if you boil his ideas down, take away the Brazilian thing, which even at the time I was wincing, is was like, don't do that. That's mm. that's really off the top of the head stuff. And it, it,
0: it is ridiculous. So well, some, just on that briefly, uh, Sweeney does say... Um we could lure, lure Brazilians here long enough so they qualify for Ireland under residency rules. This seems somewhat odd way to promote a somewhat odd way to promote underage Irish mm. talent. And then he says, suppose we turn up a load of talented Brazilians. <clears throat> will there be a cap on the number who will be allowed to play for Ireland? How would we enforce this by forced de- deportation if there are too many promising ones?
1: I, I, I think what you need to do with that is take a scissors and cut yeah, that completely the, out The Brazilian of it. idea
0: needs to it's, be cut. It, yeah. That's ridiculous.
1: I mean, everybody agrees with that. You boil down the very to the nub of this issue what Niall Quinn is saying is we need to bring an end to decades and decades of of Irish kids at 14, 15, 16, 17 getting the boat over the hollyhead and being chewed up by a system that doesn't care for them Mm. and we do that by investing in our coaches and in our facilities that's what he said now none of that is outlandish none of that is ridiculous all the stuff around it I would have issue with the corporate social responsibility why? because I don't believe it's business's job to be doing that Basically, um, that's another big issue. But so I'd share some of the the shortcomings or the the issues that Eamon Sweeney would have. But I find the tone of it really, really disappointing. Where who else is coming up with this stuff? Who else is a grand vision for Irish football?
0: You find the tone of Sweeney's piece Yeah,
1: I do. I mean, look, he's a columnist. He's entitled to his opinion. That's what it's there for. But it's so it's it's a two-footed lunge at the knee, and there's really no what's his alternative. I mean, Eamon is a. A League of Ireland nut, we know that. Yeah. It's like Rovers overs days and all that. But where's the alternative? Who else is coming up with any sort of a vision for Irish football? I mean, it's only two, two and two and a half, three years since Jonathan Gabay did that cringing um, presentation Works, yeah. on the League of Ireland at the Aviva Stadium when he was talking about painting bus stops in League of Ireland colours. So that's what the FAI have brought up with us. That was, that was presented to us at the time. John Delaney said before it came out, I'm really impressed with it, I've seen it, and I think it's going to be a good presentation. What have we heard from the FAI in, in Blue Sky Thinking since? With nothing. Mm. And yet Niall Quinn is a guy who's come in, he's spent 18 months looking at this, talking to people, and he's getting shot at from all angles. He says he doesn't have the answer. But let's not forget, this is a guy who got drummerville together. Like, if he can do that and, and, and bring about a situation where they can buy a Premier League club. Brent, uh, Bernard, you made the, the, the point. He's been a Premier League chairman. He's seen the business. He's seen Peter Scudamore and what they did with the Premier League. He was um, the director of international development with the Sunderland for a while. He's got contacts all over the world. He's seen how these things have worked in Vietnam and South, South Africa. He's had contact from the USA. He does not have the answers, but he's asking the questions. And who else is doing that?
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether his plan is, um, is viable or not, but I do think it's a good thing that someone's putting their head above water and actually mm. trying to create the base mm. and if, even if the if what it, what ends up with is, is a much more streamlined um, and fit- for purpose plan well then it's going to move on um, you know, facilities and, and development in our in our in the country and get more people playing playing sport and, and keeping them in keeping them in Ireland and hopefully helping the national team so whether whether it's right or wrong I think this is a massive cut from Amos Sweeney um, but I, I don't think that that should stop the, the base. Going on. I mean, what are the FBI? Are the FBI going to get him in now and, and, and try and streamline and come together? Yeah. But uh, he's too many good contacts, as you just say, too much experience and obviously a passion for it. Yeah. Because the easy thing to do is, you know, <coughs> uh, keep out of the limelight here and not put yourself up for criticism um, and do his punditry and uh, his other interests. But he actually seems to actually care. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's definitely a positive in that. You know, he's trying to create debate and, and discussion around it. And you know, if there is a
0: few faults in the plan, fair enough. But this is probably just the, the starting block. I haven't seen the Quinn White paper, so I don't know how yeah. you know uh, how detailed it is or what ideas he, ha- he has. But Sweeney's point is that essentially he wants uh, the structure that's there at the moment to be broken up and then replaced by something which is a- is exactly the same but with different people in charge. Is that true? Is that your, no. sen- your Quin, sense? Quinn Quin-
1: Quin- Quinn Quin- said he said to us last Tuesday. Um, this has to have FAI involvement. Okay. Whether it's the league is run independently or not, um, it has to have FAI involvement, it has to have <coughs> FAI buy-in, so they would be involved in some way maybe that they just wouldn't be as hands-on in running the league at the moment mm-hmm. uh, as they are at the moment. So it, this isn't some kind of, you know, as, as is mentioned in a couple of the articles, Fint and Drury coming from the outside and saying let's just rip everything up and have an All-Ireland league. Mm-hmm. There's government involvement needed, there's involvement from business, there's involvement from education. I mean, one of his ideas is that um, kids go into these academies They get a three-year contract as a footballer and those that don't make it, they're, they're given um, tuition fees for three years in, in university. I mean, should we not embrace that idea? Mm-hmm. It might not be functional, it might not be possible, but surely that's better than the situation at the moment where you've guys coming back from the UK and they've given up their schooling, they're coming back as supposed failures in their own, own eyes. Yeah. They're here to have a family network around them, to have a, an association that, in theory, should have their best uh, interests at heart, yeah. as opposed to some n- grab-all-money club in the UK. So, like, his, his basic ideas are...
0: Let's not shoot it down welcome. so quickly, is no, what you're saying. No, let, yeah. let's,
1: let's look at this. And, yeah, some of his ideas are off the wall. That's fine. He's a blue-sky blue thinker, that horrible phrase... Mm. He's not saying he has the answers, but why people are cutting him down left, right and centre just for, like you say, Bernard, raising his head above the parapet, I just don't get it.
2: And he hasn't, in fairness, he hasn't just said, oh, the FBI need to pay for this or yeah. the government need to pay for this. Like, unfortunately, sports sports infrastructure and sports development and particip- increasing participation cost money. And he's just thrown up some ideas about how that revenue could come about. And whether you agree with you know, business, tax breaks, etc., unfortunately, business won't throw money out unless there's some... Yeah. For them. But if that can have a, a far greater effect in terms of you know uh, making keeping our best teenagers in Ireland, getting increased or improving their chance of getting a good education, well then you have to weigh up someone you know someone at some stage has to weigh up the balance yeah. whether that's actually worthwhile. But he's not just throwing the pressure on on the FAI to say look at fund fund this because obviously the money's not
0: there. Yeah. Sweeney says on that point you could build terrific facilities in underprivileged areas for the price of the tax breaks. Niall wants to wangle for his multinational pals. Meanwhile, the state money he wants to fund his scheme would be taken not from rugby but from smaller sports because re- the rugby references the Neil Francis uh, yeah. Um The um, state money he wants to fund his scheme would be taken not from rugby but from smaller sports which are underfunded as is. Get up the Yard Nile. Is, uh, so
1: yeah, point. point on that, there's been tax breaks for contributions to the arts in this country for, for donkey's years and there for sport and that's something that Federation of, of Sport in Ireland was... Um, Federation of Irish Sports, sorry... Um, was lobbying the government, various governments, for a long, long time. I mean, that, so this is something that happens and sport isn't getting a piece of that pie, so why shouldn't it? I mean, with the thing about underprivileged areas, obviously that's a fair point. You can always say there should be money spent elsewhere. Why would you put any money into sport when the health system is like it is? Why would you give anything to foreign aid when we have homeless people in this country? Helping one should not mean you don't help another. It's, it's that's, that's a false argument to make, in my opinion.
0: Okay. Um, right. So that's there. That will make pleasant reading in the Quinn household (laughs) this uh, this morning, I wouldn't think. But it'll be interesting to see where it goes. And um, the FAI, John Delaney's it before the um, Dole committee next month, I think it is. Yeah, I think that's what Paul said, John. I think there is a sense, though, that something really has to be sorted out um, in Irish football. You know, we really have reached a point where it's gone on for too long. And um, Quinn did make the point during the week, and I do agree with him, that this idea that a 15-year-old goes to England now is just pie-in-the-sky stuff. The economies are too strong. They're yeah. global empires. You're just not going to make it anymore. Yeah. like You're talking one in... Uh, whatever the odds were 20 years ago and 10 years ago, they've almost... Well, it ties in. At, now.
1: Ties into the piece by, um, on Enda Stevens, the Sheffield United player in The Sunday World. I think it was Kevin Palmer who wrote it. And he's just basically saying that. I mean, we need to recalibrate what our expectations are for an Irish team. And he talks about Iceland. They don't have guys at the top of the Premier League, but look at what they're doing. Mm. And he made the point about all oh, the players, the Irish players currently doing very well in uh, in the Championship, David McGoldrick amongst them. Ten, ten goals for Sheffield United now this season, a guy who's played for them before, who you'd imagine Mick McCarthy will bring back in. Mm-hmm. So we need to kind of really recalibrate what it is we're doing. And it, just because we've done things for a certain way for so long doesn't mean you keep on doing it. Do you know what I mean? And people like this will always get, you know, an arched eyebrow. I was actually listening to the Free Freakonomics um, podcast during the week and this guy Andrew Yang... going for the presidency in the USA and he's talking about universal social credit, he's talking about people getting a dividend from the Googles and the Facebooks all across the world and I mean that guy is just being shot left right and center but he's just he's saying well just because this has happened since the Industrial Revolution doesn't mean it happens still it's the same in this mm. let's change it up it's not working so why would you, why would you continue with it
0: yeah fair point um, I'm seeing a few people. well one person in particular tweeted and I'm trying to find this I'm wary of getting into this stuff on air live on air as we talk about it but someone is saying that uh, Zebo nicknamed himself Django a couple of years ago after the film came out so Django wins is just right, you know okay. so I think probably just clarifying it is the yeah. easiest thing and we can leave the speculation until a later date so, um, you guys tell me where you want to go then. There's pieces on Padraig Harrington, Ryder Cup captain, uh, Roy McElroy, I think Brendan you mentioned, Andy Murray, there's the Cork plan, you like the piece on William Mullins, and there's Rosemary Smith at the end. We're probably not going to fit it all in. So, out of those, Bernard, where do you want to go? Um, cork plan. Cork plan, yeah. okay. No, well, I suppose it's kind of a little bit like,
2: you know... It's Mick Foley in the
0: Sunday Times.
2: Or Knight, yeah, not Nye Quinn coming out with a, you know... Big idea, um, but I, I just—I'm just interested to, to, I suppose, discuss or read and see—is—is is this what's needed? For, you know, for the Cork footballers to come up with a, a five-year plan to um, obviously re-establish Cork football as a as, as a force. Um, it involves some investment. You know, full-time head of performance. I think there's a full-time head of S and C. But you know, is this what? counties need to do now to, to catch up or, or to stay attached to what seems to be the, the juggernaut of of Dublin and if it is um obviously then you got to look at you know the resources of each county and obviously Cork um being the, the sizes um and the tradition it has down there across harding football probably have the resources to to do that but you know where does that leave the the smaller counties
0: it's true um Mick Foley writes in the Sunday Times that Dublin's plan in 2011 was for world domination where he says this Cork document is more a state of emergency, Yeah. Um, yeah. which I suppose it is when we've seen how Cork football in particular has declined. And he wonders as well, is it part of the post-Frank Murphy mm. uh, legacy? Is it a new generation of candy board officials liberated by the breaking up of an old power cartel to address 20th century problems in, the, in a 21st century way? Or he says maybe is it just that Cork's decline has been so stark, like a 16-point defeat in the Munster final? It's probably... But to some extent a bit of both. Yeah. 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 But I, I
2: I like it. I like the fact there's there's, there's a plan, a plan yeah. and there's ambition um and you know there seems to be consensus from the county board um to put the
0: people in place to deliver it. Yeah.
2: Rather than just speaking about oh, no, we're, we're gonna be fine.
0: Yeah. They talk about wanting to get um <coughs> corkness back. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. How would you define that?
1: I think the, the definition here is quite good. Um it depends where you're from. If you're from Cork it's that air of confidence that yeah. veers on the correct side of arrogance and anywhere else it's bloody corkness. They're, they're <laughs> the most arrogant bunch in, in, in the country. Yeah. So it really is a, a matter of perspective. But uh, you know, there was um I think Larry Ryan in her own paper and Examiner tomorrow or yesterday had a very good piece on, you know, what is corkness and Larry's got a very wry eye for this kind of stuff which I'd recommend to people. Um, but there is something, I mean, it's, it's undeniable about Cork as a county. There is that air of confidence and self-belief mm. there that has never been there in, um, in, in football circles. And I think uh, Mick actually talks about during last week's uh, press conference, he, he mentions Tom Lyons, chairman of the Carberry Divisional Board and longstanding columnist for the Southern Star newspaper who reached back into 60 years' experience when he was talking about this. And he said, Cork football has never really been up, he said. It's been more down than up. We should not take it that we're trying to get back to something we had and that our present problems are present problems. The problems of 130 years of taking football as a second game in the county. So and that's always been the case. It's always been, you know, the poor relation beside Hurling. Yeah. I remember actually going to see um, uh, the All-Ireland Under-21 final back in the noughties when they played Leash, my own county, and the final was on in Thurles. And as you can imagine, you know, any All-Ireland final for Leash, the place was mobbed in blue and white. And... Twenty, thirty Cork fans at it, you know, an All Ireland final, and and that, that I remember my dad was with me, and it really struck with him. It wasn't a surprise to me, but a lot of people from Leash, it is like, what, what's going on? And you could go up to Cork football games around the country. I've seen them play in Ulster and places like that, and there's always, you know, a, a trickle of people, a handful of people, so it's always been second best. So this is something that is long overdue. I mean, in any situation or any crisis, the first step is recognising there's yeah. a crisis, you know? Yeah. And they're finally facing up to it. There's, um,
0: a f- it's a very helpful graphic, 42 pages. I haven't had time to read the yeah. report myself. So just the five points, if you're wondering what Cork are hoping to do, a high-performance manager and a talent identification manager for both sports. There's going to be a new football structure in the uh, county championship within three years, there'll be more high-quality coaches, Uh, plans to repair the disconnect between the senior team and supporters including training days and uh, at club grounds and some social media competitions and then settle plans for a shared training base for all Cork teams within two years. All of that seems very achievable I would think. Sounds a little overdue. Not too lofty. Yeah, worryingly basic, I would <laughs> say, actually. Yeah. So, um, well, day short break. We're going to come back. Uh, <coughs> There's pieces on Podrick Harrington, Andy Murray, Willie Mullins, and Rosemary Smith. Now, welcome back. So, we have Bernard Jackman here. We have Brendan O'Brien from the Irish <coughs> Examiner as well. We've touched on the rugby, we've touched on pieces on Niall Quinn. There's plenty of golf, actually. Well, there's one McElroy piece that you both really like by Dennis Walsh, and then there are various pieces on Padraig Harrington and his uh, Ryder Cup captaincy. might be quicker and easier to deal with the McElroy piece, okay. firstly, then. That's on page 11 of the Sunday Times. A lot of Sunday Times stuff today, actually. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, a lot of good stuff in the Sunday yeah. Times today, yeah.
0: So, Dennis Walsh, uh, clinical final round performances have deserted the former world number one. Uh, there was a time when Murray McElroy was doing brilliant things in final rounds. Mm -hmm. His first win on the PGA Tour at uh, Quail Hollow, he shot a course record 62 to come from behind, and he's gone out as well over the years in final rounds, in closing rounds, or in closing part in uh, pairings, like the British Open jumps to mind when uh, he won in 2014, and he sealed the deal. But there is a sense over the last 18 months that final pairings have not worked out so well for McElroy. So what's prompted this is he was in the final round, in the final pairing in the final round with Gary Woodland, at the Tournament of Champions in Hawaii, McElroy's first event of the year. And he went out, and if you watched it, he just... Mm. He never even threatened. Um, u- ultimately that tournament was won by uh, Xander Schauffele, who shot a 62, which was a brilliant round. But McElroy shot a 72, which was basically the, s- the joint second-worst yeah. round of the day. And there was no win, it was not a difficult course. He started
1: well, he's one under through yeah. three or four. Yeah,
0: and it just, um, uh, he just couldn't hold a putt. He was still hitting the ball reasonably well, but no charge came. In isolation, you would say, That can happen, but it's part of a slightly wider trend now, and Dennis Walsh has been digging into that trend.
1: This is a small piece at the top of page 11 in in size, but I just think it's such a brilliantly written and and researched piece. And for me, it kind of sums up everything that I would ask about Rory McIlroy as a casual golf watcher, what's going on with him. And he starts off with the interview he gave after round three last weekend, which I saw at the time, and I I was kind of thinking the same thoughts on it. Um, you know, Rory was talking about how when he was in Sunday groupings before, he was chasing too much and he was too gung-ho. So he was talking about how much he'd learned and I'm going to just be patient and do my own thing. And then, like you say, Joe, he goes out and he shoots that and you're going, what is this about? This is a guy who was so so um, electric, electric yeah. on a Sunday for so long. I mean, he won his majors, he was doing everything. And there's a lot of stats in it that Dennis has really digged into really well. But the one I think that stood out for all of us is McIlroy's cumulative score for those nine rounds um, in, in Sundays where he's final in, pairings, yeah. final pairings, only one of those rounds was sub-70. And he says, with those numbers, what chance do you have? I mean, that to me really, really does sum it up. And he goes into a couple of instances where he was in touch and even... Um, with um, Molinari in one of the tournaments. And this was before Molinari became the Molinari, the the open winner. Mm. And a guy who himself had a reputation for cracking down the stretch. And Molinari beat him. And the key for me in this article is is the last two columns where he talks about, um, at this stage, you wonder how much of the difficulty is in McElroy's mind. And he talks about how he's always been wary about sports psychology. He worked with Bob Rotella for a very small period of time. And it just struck me that, you know, McElroy has... Always from the outside in seemed to take things on by himself. You know, he got rid of, he he ended his relationship with Chubby Chandler, with Connor Ridge, he's got rid of his caddy, and he just, he's always given me the impression of a guy who was just too within himself, too singular, not open enough to to other ideas. Hmm. And this just fits in perfectly with it. It's a beautifully written piece, there's not a wasted word in it.
0: Yeah, it's tight, beautifully tight. Yeah, because I had heard people make the point during the week that, in fairness to McElroy, in a lot of those pairings, he was two or three shots behind mm-hmm. and he was generally against players in the top 20, 25 in the world. So it's, you know, it's not easy. And it's a, we're talking about the elite of the elite, but the stat which I, I must say struck me was that of those nine rounds, only one of those rounds was sub-70. Yeah. So that is, that is actually a problem it's with McIlroy. It's astounding, yeah. isn't it? Well, I think, listen, with, uh, with nearly all sports it's, and,
2: and someone who's not probably, you know, winning, you look at as a technical, tactical, physical or mental, and you'd have to say, you know, He's one of the best strike, natural strikers of the ball. Yeah. So it's not technical. Tactically, i would imagine he has the experience now to be making good, good choice selection. Physically, he's probably one of the fittest yeah. in it. So the last, the last box to tick is, is the mental. And the fact that he has been um, quite shy about tapping into help in that area um, might be just the, the push he needs to, to get back winning again. Mm. You know? But um, listen, it, it, uh, by all accounts, golf is one of the hardest games. In terms of self-belief, mental uh, mental strength, confidence, and it's probably shocking that he hasn't, you know, added that extra layer. Even if it's a case of just ticking a box and making sure, yeah, you're, you're leaving
0: no stone unturned. Yeah, but, um, Cause he's met he's, Dennis says he met once with a sports psychologist and he met with Bob Rutella as yeah. well. But in so far as we know, that's about the height of it.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, John John Duggan was talking earlier in the week about um, um, was it Harrington? He was saying was Ireland's best ever sportsman because he made the, the most of himself. Now, that's not an opinion I agree with, but I see where, where John's coming from. And if you look at Rory McIlroy, it's nearly the opposite at this stage. He's clearly not getting the best of himself. Yeah. And, and being open or not being open to other influences, I mean, there's elsewhere, even the bottom of the, the same page in the Sunday Times about um, Andy Murray, who... In my opinion, again, is wrongly being described as the greatest British sportsman of all time. But that's a guy who's been open to new ideas, so much so that he got Amelie Moresmo to be his coach. Mm. And people are saying, a female coach for a men's player. So that's a guy who was breaking out of the box and looking at different ways of doing things and mm. doing things that others didn't think. And McElroy just strikes me as a guy who's the opposite way, that maybe he's not open enough. Mm. And maybe he's too used to doing all these things himself and taking too much on board. And we've seen now he's, he's ditched Europe, basically. Um, you know, his, his Irish Open commitments are gone, mm. so you can see that he's kind of he's getting rid of everything in, in, in the exterior and he's concentrating, what do I have to do to win more majors? And maybe he just doesn't have enough people around him to step out and say, well, here's just an idea, yeah. what That's do you right. think
0: about this? Well, it seems even, um, so look, the elephant in his room, uh, the elephant in the room as well as his putting. Yeah. Um, and the word, fairly reliable word, was that, you know, he, he, he hooked up with Brad Faxon last year, who was a very, an excellent PGA Tour putter, one of the best ever, you know. And they, they met each other at the local golf club where they both lived. They happened to run into each other and they got talking and Faxon gave him some tips and it really helped him for a couple of weeks. But even then, the suggestion seemed to be that um, it was uh, casually suggested, Rory, why don't we head to the golf club around this time today and play around and um, maybe it wasn't a total coincidence that Brad Faxon happened to be waiting. That almost mm-hmm. bringing those two together nice. had to be done yeah. or even that had to be done with a, an air of coincidence as opposed to look, I hate to tell you, but you're about 200 in the world and you're mm-hmm. and you need to go and see someone. So he is in charge of his own ship. He's left two different um, agents. He's le- left his caddy behind. Really, the, I mean, his, his coach, Michael Bannon, is the only one who's survived this far and even towards the end of last year we saw Rory taking advice from another coach so you do wonder who he listens to Mm. that would be a very interesting thing for us all to really know who gives you advice that stops you in your tracks and makes you think okay I'm going to change things here yeah Uh, the putting putting is a problem it's a massive problem and on Sunday he couldn't hold a put he didn't hold a single put outside 15 feet all week you think about that the longest put he hold on that Sunday just gone was from four feet so look that is an issue we would be disappointed if we had those stats that is an issue however he is at the moment managing to play well enough even with the pudding on the Thursday, Friday and Saturday to put himself exactly. in final pairing. Yeah. So it's not just the pudding. And he's
1: won majors with his pudding before, so yes. you know. It yeah.
0: probably is something else. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it's
2: it endlessly you've, complicated. It must be very hard though for some well, if you've been a child prodigy and everything's been easy for you yeah. to a certain extent, then to Put your hand up and say, "Oh, I need help," and then t- understand how to take that on board, how that imp- uh, how it integrates with your natural game and your natural instinct. Um, but it looks like, yeah, he does potentially now. His, sta- his career hasn't kicked on to the level that we all probably now expect or hope. So he potentially does need to look at different different people who can help him.
0: Well, in 2014, he won the British Open, won a WGC, and won the PGA. So two majors and a WGC in the space of about four or five weeks. 2014, five years ago, he was. He was 24 years old with four <coughs> majors, and I just won those two on the bench at 24. So if you, in your 2014 Christmas review, had said, you know what, I think we're going to be sitting here in half a decade, yeah. and he wanted to win another major, you would have been laughed out of the room. He was, he was set to be the Tiger Woods. Listen,
1: under some theory that the serious. vast majority, 99.9% of human beings that, that have this creative... Explosion that only lasts a certain amount of time, you know, whether it's music or any yeah. sort of arts and sports. Are we looking at McElroy just in, in no. that vein? You know, it, it, like you said, it would have been ridiculous to even suggest that. But mm. I mean, time is ticking on.
0: It is ticking on. And Harrington, long, long ago, was was saying around that time that it was it was Rory's time to make hay because mm. the next generation of college kids in the U.S. would would yeah. be able to hit the ball as far as yeah. which was his great strength. Yeah. And now we are seeing. Now look, he's still. And uh, the signs were very good at the weekend. He's still maybe the best driver in the world mm-hmm. on his day, mm-hmm. but there is ju- that that advantage he had is not as fast, <coughs> yeah. And it, on the greens, they're yeah. all way ahead of him. So you would actually, as, as ludicrous as it is to say about McElroy, or it sounds to say about a 29-year-old. His gap, based on the strength of his game, yeah. is dwindled. His window to win is actually um, in decline. We. Are going to continue the paper review here on Facebook Live, and we'll podcast the full thing just because we run out of time a little bit. So we're going to continue the paper review here on Facebook Live. You can podcast the full paper review with Bernard Jackman and Brendan O'Brien, but we're going to take a short break here on News Talk, and after the break, you will be uh, in the fine company of Kevin Coban and Stephen Doyle, who are at Goodison for. The visit of Bournemouth against Everton. So that is on the way. After the ad break, we're going to continue the paper round uh, here, uh, the paper review here on Facebook Live. After this short break, so our News Talk listeners are gone. We're still here on Facebook Live. This is the beauty of modern technology. Working, what a world, continuing <laughs> on here. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's the McElroy thing. It's. I mean, the one thing is, I suspect he is working very hard. He's yeah. he's doing all. You know, he's, he's he's clearly in the gym a lot and he's practicing. I'd say he's scratching his head a little bit. Yeah. And and if ever there was an ass, if you could say to me, you can. Drive the ball like McElroy and put like McElroy, or you can drive the ball like someone so so and put like Jordan Speed at his best. You pick speed at his yeah. best because it must be infuriating yeah. to think that you can hit the ball 340 yards like nobody else and then from 10 feet the stupid ball yeah. will not go in the stupid hole. You know what I mean? <laughs> like none of us can even dream of hitting the ball 300 yards, but from 10 feet we might roll the odd one in. Yeah, That must be the infuriating thing for this Yeah. On to Harrington then, <clears throat> anything catch your eye? Like, but There was Dermot Lees, there was Paul McGinley, who had known him well, Philip Quinn's covered him a long time, Tommy Conlon, various people talking about Harrington.
1: Yeah, well, I, um, I actually, when I went to buy the papers, I was looking forward to reading McGinley's take on, on Harrington. I knew he'd be in it, obviously. Um, um, I knew that there were... You know, in similar circles, growing up in in South Dublin, but I didn't know how close they were. I didn't yeah. know that whole side.
0: Colasht Aina has produced two Ryder Cup captains. I, I
1: knew even of the school <laughs> link, but I didn't know that you know they knew each other as as intimately as they did, and I'd forgotten as well that they were teammates when they won the World Cup in '97. That time, I'd totally forgotten about it. It's yeah. amazing when things just completely leave your head. Of you're getting old. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to remember this stuff, yeah. and now even the old stuff I remembered is gone. You know. But you know, McGinley is—you know—people talk about Harrington as being a fascinating character. McGinley, to me, is equally so. He always has been, and since you know the whole Ryder Cup captaincy and just the, the reputation he has now outside of golf, and even mentioned here is that the London School of Economics he's, is involved in something. Right, like yeah, that.
0: he's involved in their leadership. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, um, this is a
1: guy who's branched ca- out. Casually
0: and, drops that in. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no, it's good for the brand. Let's
1: be honest. Does not surprise me in the slightest. I mean, he's—you no. he's, know—Guru has a very some negative connotations among people but that's n- nearly how I describe him he's, he's just been so successful in what he did and he knows he knows Harrington so well he knows the Ryder Cup so well before, before the last Ryder Cup in the Golf National I remember reading his piece in the Sunday Times and he went in to detail why he thought Europe would win it right. all about how the course suited him how the European I team I yeah re- brilliant piece wasn't
0: it it was prescient to say the least yeah. I mean he yeah. was
1: bang on in everything he, he said was, yeah, so this guy know he knows his onions and um, his stuff on, on Harrington is really good and he talks about Bernard you'd, you'd like all that as well about how you know a, a doer isn't all, was a good shower yeah, and, and what it is that Harrington does? You yeah,
2: know. you gave the example of the you know the two best golfers, Jack Nicholson and Nick Faldo um, weren't or were losing captains. Yeah. So, uh, but I think Porick has got a good balance. You know, he's won twenty nine tournaments, three majors. So you can't say he you know he was a graft, just a grafter. He's actually he's been an elite, but also he's had some really tough times. Yeah. He's been able to. Uh, I think everyone in that team, whoever, whoever's in it, will be able to um, recognize you know, the struggles he's had in his career and the disappointments, um, but also how good he was in a team environment. So he has that experience and he speaks about being vice captain twenty fourteen, invaluable contributor, but also he gave him, you know, a task of, of, of keeping an eye on one player, Victor um we Dubison, and you know how he, he did that so well. And the challenge for Park would obviously be to be be up in his helicopter and I suppose empowering his vice captains and um being able to see the overall plan. I think that's what you know anything I've read about McGinley's captaincy um, was how how organised he was, how clear he was in the yeah. in the vision identity, um, but also the roles and responsibility each person had. And you'd imagine that you know it, it's hard to see Pork, um not doing a good job based on lack of preparation. I think you will he'll, mm. he'll you know dot every i and, and cross every t in terms of. Preparation for for it, but um, it seems seems like he's the ideal man for the job. And the third the third Irishman to in the last four to be yeah. captain cap of the
0: Ryder Cup. I, it's, I, it's, it's like there's loads of great colour. He, I mean, yeah. he talks about remembering. him knew, known his brothers first, and Padraic Carrington was always young Harry uh, growing up, which is great. And he talked about when they played together as a partnership, how they never ever talked about golf on the golf course because they went about the games so differently we never read each other's putts we never talked during the round simplicity was key we talked about everything uh, except golf I think McGinley should be applauded here because if you read between the lines and not even that much between the lines this isn't all sugary and sweetness in Padre County it's perfect in every way like he does say um, traits required to achieve do not always uh, match traits necessary to lead there is an argument that if you did not struggle you were less likely to understand why others struggle now I think he says Podrick will have that box ticked because he did struggle to win yeah. initially. He says he loves an argument. He would have been a great lawyer. That is a strength. It, is, it sustained the focus application necessary to implement swing changes. But he says, but to lead and inspire 12 players with different personalities, flexibi- flexibility and subtlety will be needed. Mm. And in that regard, his choice of vice-captains will be important. Yeah. So he is very politely saying that that could be a potential weakness of Harrington's. Yeah. And Harrington talked this week about being, he's not a fuzzy give him a hug kind of character, he's he's an old schoolmaster type. Uh,
1: Like like was mentioned there, I mean, McGinley mentions the quite dogmatic views that he has. Yeah. (coughs) And we've all either sat down with with Harrington or heard him speaking uh, at length, and that's what it is, and the man is an obsessive, and he's talked for years about how he obsesses about his game, and how will that translate now that he's Ryder Cup captain? You know, McGinley, I think, in one of the other articles, maybe it's Philip Quinns in in the Mail on Sunday, Uh, talks about what advice he would give him and he says just go and play your golf for 18 months you know the last 6 months you can kind of really knuckle down and you can follow guys but play your golf, be your own guy can you imagine Porrick Harrington maybe for 18 months parking the Ryder Cup well do you know what he was on here during
0: the week and I did say to him because he's the away captain so he'll have no say in the course which I think takes up a lot of time and I said to him so like, will there be lots of months where you're not doing very much and he said to be honest yeah Okay. Mm. Which I thought was good, That's yeah. good. as opposed to, know, I'll be reading the stats yeah. nonstop stop Because Tommy Conlon, it's a, it's a lovely way of going about <laughs> it. In 1955, a British historian and author named Cyril Northcote Parkinson wrote an essay for The Economist that expanded on inefficiencies in government bureaucracies. In a phrase that became known as Parkinson's Law, he wrote that work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. In other words, give someone a day to do a job, it'll be done in a day, give them a week, for the same job, they'll take a week, give them a month, and so forth, and so on. And he talks about what he calls the absurd amount of time Harrington has, 20 months yeah. to prepare for three yeah. days of golf. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not a massive golf fan,
2: but I think it's going to be fascinating just watching Porik, yeah. and how it evolves, and how he leads, and he's so honest and transparent as well, maybe to a fall sometimes. Yeah. But I think it's added an extra dimension to um, to, to the writer. No, Pope. it's
0: true. I'd say um, you in particular will be able to relate to scoreboard journalism and outcome based analysis yeah. and everything you did was right if you win and everything you did was wrong if you lose never is that more cruel than in the Ryder Cup where sure. frankly the captain can do the greatest job of all time like Davis Love in 2012 where they were leading by yeah. four yeah. points and then <clears throat> frankly there is just this thing where in the singles you don't know what order they're coming out in yeah. you don't know what you're like so it's completely blind you fling out 12 lads and that decides to go, yeah. the whole thing and if that doesn't go well for you yeah you're Doomed. Terrible captain. Um, (laughs) Terrible captain. Right,
1: right, Curtis has a line on that, um, page 79 of The Sunday World, and he's talking about, many of us find the endless analytics, the blue goldfish, the suggestion that deciding Rory's place on the timesheet requires Einstein-like intellectual muscle to turn off, which does sum it up. Yeah. You know, it it, it does go overboard. um, I think, you know, there is an acceptance of that fact by some of the people involved in some of the, pa- some of the papers. Yeah. But like you say, Bernard, the fact that we have an Irishman again, and that Irishman...
0: It gives a great interest. It does, like, it when, does. When, when McGinley was doing it, we were all honed yeah. in watching it, so it's going to be great. I don't
1: like to write a copy, you're pretty much screwed. For
0: you are, yeah, for the next while. Um, Dermot Lee, as you can imagine, knows Harrington extremely well, and there's just one great anecdote, it's a fine piece about Harrington generally, but towards the end he says, I remember being in Harrington's house for a photo shoot so he was obviously there to do an interview, when the uh, photographer seemed excessively busy. Uh, (laughs) Real Lee's quote. Uh, He said, Noting my impatience, our host, Harrington, he called me aside and said gently about the photographer, he's only trying to do the best job he can. Suitably chastened, I was immediately aware of how we scribes had benefited from the player's indulgence in such matters. Mm. It's nice, such a class.
1: Yeah, yeah. He recognises an obsessive when he sees one. Yeah, I'd right. say he respected it in yeah. a big way. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, how highly do we rate Andy Murray then as a sports person, Bernard?
2: Uh, listen, I think he's he's done a huge amount in terms of for for British tennis. Um, he's I like I like. Um, I like Anytime I see him interviewed, I like his story, I like all the setbacks he had and the, the perseverance and the diligence um, he's he's brought to, the, to to his career in the game. Um, you know, his his press conference the other day was um, emotional, you yeah. know, um, and brutal, you see, really, yeah. brutal awful. yeah brutal but I don't think he can control it. I think that's how that's his passion and he's he's so driven. So um, I probably admire him more. That Maybe the raw results and, and, and titles mm. probably um, deserve, but um, I don't know how you can rank him with, with other people. But I think he's a likable um,
0: guy, and I'd love to see him have a fitting send off. Yeah, um, I, I saw I was listening to I, I don't even know who, I think it was a British radio station on the way in, and they had spoken with the surgeon who was saying that he f- thinks it'll be very unlikely he can make Wimbledon.
2: Yeah, so yeah.
0: It, he may not get the yeah. farewell, he may have to walk out in his. In his glad rags and wave, which would be yeah. not the best. I don't think that would be
1: Andy Murray either, and he well, not, he wouldn't do no, that, would he? He no. he signed up one of the one of the pieces. He's signed into tournaments or signed up for tournaments through into February, so that's where it goes at the moment. But he's he's talking, he's spoken in in one of the pieces in the Mail on Sunday today, Mike Dixon. It was in Melbourne and Murray's quote was saying, "I just can't imagine doing anything else." Like he's taken on some outside interests to prepare him sure. for retirement, and yet he's kind of going, "I just can't face them. The closer I get to them, yeah. I, I just don't." It's tennis for me, you know. Yeah.
2: And but I don't think there's any elite athlete who's, who plays without pain, right? There's, you know. Uh, but to imagine having a for me the thought of having a, a you know a hip issue mm. in tennis. I mean, yeah. there's no sport. That probably exposes that like for the duration, yeah. you know, the intensity, um, the you know, firmness of the surface, of the surface well. and then the training you need. So it's not just, yeah. I mean, Paul McGrath, for example, you know, didn't train all week and yeah. just jogged a couple laps around the field with Aston Villa yeah. to be okay on a Saturday for 90 minutes. But you know, there's no chance in, in, in tennis that you can no. protect yourself.
1: Martin, Martina Navratilova was saying in yeah. the sort of times that she noticed he was favouring his left side even while standing yeah. a
0: year and a half ago even. a year and a half ago so yeah. I mean, she said it's wow. been such a downer actually you know because Australia open is on it's when yeah. the whole thing kicks off and it's yeah. cast a shadow over the whole yeah. thing he seems to be very popular uh, like Murray's character is very interesting uh, I, I took a little while to understand yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his yeah. authenticity I think as a person yeah. you know there were times where I thought oh, give us a bit more but actually he just had a certain mm. set of values I think that he stuck rigidly to yeah. he never was a show. He never said what you wanted him to say, because um, there's a piece in the Observer by Kevin McKenna, and he talks about how, look, in Scotland, he was an absolute, you know, icon from yeah. uh, minute one. He says, "I feel that England has grown to love him too, following a period when it didn't quite know how to react to him. They'd been accustomed to Tim Henman, John Lloyd, Sue Barker speaking eloquently and dispassionately. The intense young Scot was something else. He didn't seem to have read or understood the protocol of a uh, British sporting defeat." Uh, he didn't appreciate being asked stupid questions either, which was always uh, very true. He was a good man to correct you as well if you, yeah. if you said, Well, so and so, you know, you'll break this record, and he'll be like, He would say, Well, Serena Williams yeah. has broken that record. He yeah. put a few people on their backs as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, as a journalist, you'd admire that as well. I remember Ronald Lagara was very good. You never, you never approached an interview with, with Raj. Um, every question. Was well, speaking just, of courtness. Oh, yeah, <laughs> every question. I remember when he was playing with Ireland and, and when they were in um, in camp and. I remember every journalist who would ask a question of Roger would be right. You could see that it was paired away, mm. it was lovingly crafted and examined from all angles. Is, does this stand up, or is it yes. going to come back at me? Right. Somebody like Murray, when they do that, that's great. Like you know, you want somebody who's really intelligent, isn't yeah, it? Exactly yeah, exactly.
0: Like you know. Yeah. So. Um, greatest, greatest British sports person though. Well, what's the criteria? What are the criteria? Because uh, what did he? He won two majors, did he? Or Three, three, three Grand Slams. He won Wimbledon in 2013 yeah and he won a is, US Open for sure two, 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 two U.S. O- titles as well and Olympic titles yeah so it's not, not a bad um, no it's amazing return but who are the contenders mm. see so you, you come to this blind and you then do, you're going to forget you? someone I'm sure there's a few Olympians in there like does a footballer get in there does like a Bobby Charlton I saw Bobby Charlton being mentioned as England's well, I guess whatever well, if we're talking Andy Murray we have to extend it to Great Britain but I saw Bobby Charlton being mentioned um I don't know. I never care about these no. guys. No. What are they? How can you compare Andy Murray in the 21st century with Bobby Charlton in the 60s? Yeah. <laughs> in different sports, you know. <laughs> yeah. The 1st to Murray, he's up against, you know, in his career, he's up against Djokovic. Ah, yeah. 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 Very tough time. You know, yeah. yeah, tough time. Yeah. I mean, if Murray was coming through in the next wave, You'd say might stand a chance, chance of getting five or six exactly. or seven. Yeah. yeah, no, it must have been unbelievably difficult. it He had to improved massively to yeah. get there didn't he it was yeah. a bit of a mountain for him
1: and even even uh, Navratilova spoke about it as well you can't underestimate the pressure he was on at wimbledon mm-hmm. i mean he like you mentioned the darling of british tennis and They'd had the, the Henman era and yeah. suddenly we have a contender sure. that just never gets there in Henman Hill
0: yeah.
1: and then Murray's Mound and everything. I mean, it was, you know, it was vomit-inducing a lot of the time to look on and yet you couldn't ju- but admire mm. that he actually went and he did famous, it yeah. with all that expectation. Like you say, Bernard, the quality of men's tennis He's at that the, time. The greatest era of that.
0: all time. So and, and he didn't belong there initially. No. You was know? like he ch- a grafter. He chiseled his yeah. way in mm. through sweat. Yeah. Uh, which was remarkable, I guess you can achieve greatness by winning something once or twice yes. uh, and uh, in, in a, and it's just as great as the guy who can win something well, fifteen yeah. times isn't yeah it? yeah um you have a Willie Mullen story open there, and the yeah Sunday just times. obviously
2: um it was just around his his sense of uh um ambition and and you know self belief and and being a little bit um creative you know obviously he was high profile two thousand and sixteen. Um, he refused to lower his training fees to to Gigginstown um and like giginstown and and j p McManus and, and and having having the, you know horses from them makes your job and, and the chance of success yes. much more likely likely but um in fairness, the interview with his son but he 's talking about how he lost sixty horses kind of overnight and rather than actually downscaling and accepting that um, he went out and found new owners, built new barns mm. um and in the following year, when um, he beat uh, Gordon Elliott, who obviously he was a, was a phenomenal trainer as well. Eight, seven in the race to be leading trainer at a Cheltenham Festival. Six of Elliott's winners were from Gigginstown. Mm. You know, horses that Willie would have had, and um, seven, the seven of, of uh, Willie Mullins' owners or are, are winners had come from different owners. So um, it's just phenomenal. It's phenomenal the, the, the size and scale of. Of the big yards now in in, um, in irish race and it says you know willie mullins has got 250 horses gordon elliott's got 250 horses joseph o'brien has got 250 horses and it makes it very difficult for the small trainer um so i'm I'm conscious of that but I, i do think that um willie mullins is a you know it's a it comes from a phenomenal family but um incredibly successful and probably more competitive internally then um, maybe it comes across the
0: exterior is very exterior is very, yeah, yeah, very exterior, steely and yeah. uh, wants to win. Patrick makes the point that when the Giggins. Is it Giggins Town or Giggins Town? Have we sure. settled this? I'm not sure. Giggins town? I, I, oh,
1: town? I know Michael O'Leary um, took exception to uh, the question from the British journalist that wanted Cheltenhams, and I saw it in print, so I didn't understand <laughs> it. Well, is it Giggins Town or Giggins? It's spelled Giggins Town. Yeah, but, it
0: yeah. is. Okay, when he lost Michael O'Leary's horses, yeah. uh, there's a quote there from Patrick the effect that, well, yeah. at the age he was, the this, this scale of the blow, they fully anticipated him saying, Do you know what, that's my time. Yeah. It's a nice time yeah. to bow out. Wow. And, he, and he did the opposite. I guess the hook for the piece is that, unlike the previous two yeah. years in the champion trainer race, where Elliot's tactic was to load up the front half of the year and have a massive lead, which Willie Mullins would have to try and strangle back at punch saying mm-hmm. right at the death, it seems Mullins has looked at what Elliot has done and, and decided... Uh, to try and get off to an early lead. It's a bit like Jose Mourinho and Alex Ferguson and, and you know, how league campaigns yeah. changed. So it seems now Mullins is at over three million quid and he's running away with the champion trainer title.
1: It's, it's an amazing, it shouldn't be surprising, but it is amazing that something like that would matter so much. Yeah. Isn't it? it I was, don't think people really appreciate no. that about the horse racing world, that this is clearly a point of pride and principle that the, the changes that you both talked about he, that he made, the bigger barn and we're getting the racers out, the, the horses out earlier... I don't know why that surprises me. That it's because I've I've been to Cheltenham and I've done some horse racing, but it do, it did it surprised me. It was like wow, and, and like even Patrick spoke about there that he was at an age he didn't need to do it. No, and yet this was like it was like a declaration of war that that Gordon Elliott had made, and it was accepted and it was responded to in, in flabbergast yeah, style. Yeah,
0: he's, he's emphatic now. What Mullins is at uh, three million over three million. Yeah, six hundred thousand ahead. Okay, um, but it's. And with punches tend to come where he generally comes out on top as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He finishes the season
2: historically strong, but yeah. as you said, he's he's watched what what uh, Elliot has done, and he's attacked from the from the start. So he's um, he's a twenty seven percent strike rate, but uh, an unbelievable
0: um, family dynasty. But you know, Willie is Willie's taken it to another level. yeah. yeah. Uh, just to finish off, then there was a back page piece in the Sunday Times, which jeez, it kicks off with a bang. Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> the opening 200 words, You, kinda, you, you, you there's the two-page spread in those alone. We don't quite get it, unfortunately, but Rosemary Smith yeah. is uh, chatting about her new book.
1: Rosemary Smith is the, um, obviously, female um, rally driver from the 60s and 70s who, who broke lots of new ground and had to put up with a lot of sexism and misogyny. And even from... Members of her own family, her mother, looked down her nose at what she was doing. Her husband apparently was not happy with it. Um, we've seen Rosemary Smith pieces in the papers over recent weeks. We obviously had the, the Season of book Awards and everything else. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of us would have kind of seen and heard bits and pieces about her. But like you say, Joe, I mean, the start of it is... Um, subheading is the me too movement has gone too far says former rally driver so i think we're all sitting down expecting this is going to be a meaty look into the the, the gender politics of the age from a woman who's in her 80s now and an, in fairness has a unique view of of what it is to be a, a woman in a man's world mm. and <coughs> disappointingly i think it's only it's only mentioned in the first two paragraphs so there's no i mean the quote is it's um she is talking about the women's view, the women's movement, and Me Too in particular, and she says it's going over the top. So she says, it's getting to the stage where a man can't even put his hand on your elbow to help you through the door. That's just being a gentleman, and I like being treated as a woman. Women have gone over the top, and men can't be men. They're afraid to be men. Women are putting them up, up now to be knocked down. It has gone too far the other way. So that's just literally peeling off the, the lid on a can of worms and flinging them around the room, and yet it's not... It's not developed. Developed by by Paul in the article for whatever reason. I'd say
0: time. I'd say um, space is clearly space an issue. Was the issue, yeah. I'm but like it, the fact that Paul led with it. Exactly. He knew was oh, he knew. Really he yeah. knew. Yeah. 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 And,
1: and and it's it's just a pity that it wasn't developed a little bit more. You'd like to get that. I mean, obviously, this is a hugely emotive issue and mm. a hugely topical issue. And who are we as three men in the studio to? to yes. Do we? Do, do, do three
0: men here it? want to weigh in and agree wholeheartedly or? To steer clear. I think, we- I think it's enough
1: to say that, that, you know, for a lot of people it's a very black and white issue and it's black and white issue on both sides of the argument. So you have people who are saying, like Rosemary Smith, this has gone too far and you have other people who say it's certainly not gone far enough mm. and how can anybody say it's gone so far when we've had millennia of you know yeah. um, women being told to keep in their place. So it would have been just a very interesting... Uh, look at it uh, from a woman who had gone through all this, who you know did did things that were never expected or that that was believed was inappropriate for yeah. a person of her gender to do it. So yeah,
2: I'm going to buy the book. I haven't just read yeah. this it. little article. Yeah. I haven't haven't read it, but you know she what a story. She's in her eighties. Um, she reckons she's the oldest person ever to drive a Formula One car as she did for 15 laps um, last year um, with Alan Pro- Prost, like. <laughs> it's pretty
0: phenomenal, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Un- unbelievable, unbelievable life story. Uh, there was a great... On, on that whole area that she's talking about, though, and I, you know, I don't think three men sitting around here talking about it is probably the right way to go, but um, there was a great piece a couple of weeks back around Christmas in the Irish Times, Una Mullally wrote it, and you know this... The, uh, so, uh, uh, Sorry, your name escapes me here. Rosemary Spate is talking about, um, you know, men are afraid to open a door for a woman and that kind of stuff, and, like, you'll see these stories now in in media and it's real clickbait stuff you know man fired for opening door mm-hmm. this kind of stuff and actually one it's just it's it's so cheap like because there are two everyone's going to have a side there you know and men are going to say well this is bloody outrageous and this is crazy and her argument was that this stuff it's real clickbaity mm. it's re- it's distilling the issue down into yeah. nonsense and it also allows people who don't want change to happen to go do you know what, then, if that's what this is about, I want nothing to do with yeah. any of it. And so you're, you're taking the, the nonsense stuff, which actually isn't representative of the real world. Mm-hmm. Like, if any of us open a door for a woman, there's no issue, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. But you're able, you're able... If you want to block it all out, you're able to take that exactly. and, and throw it in with, say, a more serious issue, which is very real, and actually we need to smarten up as an audience. And the media needs to play a role as well and stop kind of throwing... All this kind of nonsense, Which won't day after happen, day.
1: No, I mean it is clickbaity, and, and the clickbaity culture is still in. So that's not going to probably not. You know what you what you need is people to use their heads and yeah. to be able to separate that. But again, it's an emotive issue, and people don't well, have time. They, they are, see that article and they go, "Well, that's enough for me. I don't want anything to well, do." Well, her happen. argument
0: was that the the, the dumbed down gender yeah. war is clickbait gold. Yeah because you're either a man or a woman. Sure. Everyone's interested. Yes, yes. Um, and it was just a really thoughtful, it was a brilliantly written piece. And I must say, because I was getting a bit sick of the, you know... Can you open a door, not open a door? And then you realize, oh, God, this really exactly. isn't, this, this is not what, what this is about. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it a really good piece. I'm sure it's in the Irish Times website. And I promise you, it's explained 10 million times more eloquently than I've done <laughs> without much pre thought. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, which has come right at the end of uh, the paper review. So I think that is pretty much just done. Unless there's anything else you want no, to uh, direct someone towards,
1: just on that, there was. Um, <clears throat> a sponsored piece in Sunday Independent Life magazine on uh, female athletes oh, yeah. it's essentially a sports photo shoot but it goes into a lot of what we're talking about in the sports sense about the need for women to be more visible uh, the, the 2020 uh, campaign yeah. that is looking to increase um, the the presence of female athletes in the in the media by 20% over a certain period of time so that's just on the back of the rosemary um, Smith stuff. It's not often we talk about stuff that's in the Life magazine and the, yeah. the newspaper views. And just one other one that caught my eye was um, the piece with the Wolves owner in the Sunday Times, oh, yeah, yeah. which I think is well worth anybody's. Uh, very attention.
0: ambitious. Yeah. yeah. They're looking to win a league. Yeah,
1: but it, but in a very interesting way, they're not going
0: to chuck money at it. So yeah, the Spurs way they highlighted it. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's in the Sunday Times as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, lads, pleasure. Thanks so much for being here, Bernard Jackman. Thank you. Uh, keep busy, popping and chat to us about uh, where yeah. it's all going Thank in the next couple of months. Off the ball. Find us
1: on Twitter at Off the Ball.
0: News Talk 106 to 108.